I spent my first savings on a teddy boy suit. It was navy blue hopsack, and it cost seven pounds, seven shillings and sixpence in Stoke Newington High Street. With it went the obligatory swades with thick, spongy soles. Brothel creepers, blue, of course, and a black bootlace tie. I wore the outfit on my first date with a girl in Hornsey, and it poured with rain. My hair hung down, and the suit was shrinking on my back as we made our way to a dance in Highgate, at a place called Holy Joe's, or St. Joseph's Church, near where my father had died. This was sophistication, though the kid in me was not buried far beneath the surface. On evenings when the old lady had to work late, I would be Michael's protector. Despite my age, we still shared the same bed, and we would lie there and listen to Valentine Dial, the man in black, reading a series of radio horror stories, with the blankets pulled over our heads to keep out the bogeyman. At the same time, I was trying to train myself in all things that interested men. The bridge between boyhood and manhood, for me, was motorbikes. There was a boy down the road who kept his bike in the bedroom. He had trays for the oil laid out across the floor. He could, so he said, do an oil change and have his girl at the same time. To the rest of us in Finsbury Park, this seemed to be the essence of cool. I swore that one day I too would own one of these machines. In the meantime, I rode Pillion. I left the railway when I got a job at the cartoon animation studio W.M. Larkins, with a fashionable address in Mayfair. I'd shown some of my art school drawings to the boss, Peter Sachs, a Jew who had escaped from Nazi Germany, and he let me in on the ground floor as a messenger boy. If things turned out well, he said, he would allow me to mix colours. Colour mixing was not to last long, for it turned out that I was partially colour-blind, and certainly not up to the subtlety of animation. I was all right when I stuck to blues, reds and yellows, but my browns, beiges and greens were less secure. I went back to running messages, too inexperienced in their eyes to be taken into the dark room. The only photography I'd ever encountered was sitting with my sister in Jerome's in the Holloway Road, having our portraits taken for the family. Mayfair touched me in other ways. I became very conscious of my appearance. I was not conceited, but I fretted about not having enough money to buy clothes. Walking from work out of the underground at Piccadilly, I would catch sight of myself in the window of the Rolls-Royce showroom as I turned into Charles Street and go to work on the arrangement of my collar and cuffs. I also remember swinging around into Berkeley Square and smelling the scent of that wonderful shop Moises Stevens, looking at the orchids in the window with water running down it. It made me aware of a different world, a world far removed from my biking mates and the boys from the bunk, who were now emerging from their first confinements in corrective or penal institutions. Mayfair held out the promise of escape from Finsbury Park and all that. But not yet. I bought a Veloset 250 with a fishtail and girder forks, which would throb along at fifty miles an hour. 
I felt like an ace at Brooklands, with no such things as crash helmets in those days. We would drive out in formation on Sundays, down the A-10 to Collier's End, where we would dive off an old survival dinghy from the war into the ice-cold river. We would eat some continental food at a cafe on the way home, and then bomb the rest of the way up the arterial road to Finsbury Park. We were no Hell's Angels, and they were great days of freedom, with friendships quite different from the relationship I had with my old bunk boys, the hunting dogs, who were now hanging out in packs looking for trouble. Despite my biking friends, I still needed the mad dogs. Intimidation was always strong in Finsbury Park, and there was a force field all the time trying to draw...